Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, staff correspondent Ben Halperin talks with Leila Amenidole. Professor Amenidole is an adjunct at Fordham University School of Law and the founding partner of Amenidole & Associates. They discuss the IP law perspective of the Snapchat art project and other developments from the art world. This episode is part two of a two-part discussion on this topic. Enjoy. Today we have on Leila Aminadole. She's an adjunct professor at Fordham Law School and also runs her own intellectual property-based law firm. And so if you don't mind, would you mind kind of telling me a little bit about what you do both at Fordham and in your practice and kind of how you got there? Sure. My career focuses on both art law and intellectual property law, and really the bulk of the work relating to art. So uh, when I teach at Fordham, I teach a class called Art and Cultural Heritage Law, and it's a course in which we examine really the fine art market primarily. And so we'll look at art sales, the laws that regulate sales, art forgery, art thefts and crime, Nazi looted art, and also antiquities looting. We do briefly touch upon artist rights and intellectual property and constitutional rights related to the creation of art. But the bulk of the semester really focuses on the art market. And in my private practice, I do the same. I work with collectors, dealers, nonprofits, various institutions. I deal with cases involving art theft, forgeries. I do work with a lot of artists related to uh, protecting their art, either through intellectual property or through estate considerations. Um, So I really cover a whole variety of legal topics related to art. And um, have you found that as technology advances um, and the internet age and, you know, as the world kind of flattens and shrinks that there have been different kinds of techniques that artists might use or that you might use as an attorney to help artists protect their work? Definitely. As technology evolves, the art world also evolves and art in general evolves with artists using different techniques. Uh, like 3D printing is a great example of you know, technology that wasn't available 10 or 15, 20 years ago that artists, artists are now incorporating in their works. Same thing with a lot of different performance art, video art, installations, a lot of appropriation art where images are taken um, and used in other types of art. So, you know, that wasn't really readily available, um, let's say, a few decades ago about being able to, to take certain types of images, to be able to take photographs, easily download them, easily get copies of them. So, the art world is definitely evolving with technology. And of course, some of the evolution and the changes, of course, play out in the legal world as well. And um, we were talking previously a little bit about how some artists use uh, tricks within their art. You mentioned something about how um, some artists are now even including specific raw um, materials that could only be traced to to one location or one time period to make sure that art is not being copied. Would you mind elaborating on that a little bit? Sure. So with the authentication process, you know, which is really authenticating that a piece of art came from a, you know, a certain artist that it was made at a certain time, you can use forensics to study a piece of art. So Let's say you buy a piece of art and you're not sure or you're considering the purchase of a piece of art and you want to ensure that 
the piece is as it's being advertised. It was created by a certain artist. So let's say the work is being advertised as something made in the 18th century, and you get the work tested, and it turns out that all the materials in the work have only been available for the past you know, 40 or 50 years. Then clearly it's a forgery. It's not authentic. It's not as being advertised. So I think artists today are really mindful that works can be forged, that you know there are these forgers who are really clever and really talented and can pass off forgeries as authentic works. So some artists today are using materials that are very, say, site-specific, like really tied to a certain location. There's one artist I was work I am working with who had taken material from the bedrock of New York. So if someone was trying to forge the art, they would actually have to come to New York, go to a specific place and get that soil from the ground that was embedded into the painting. So I think artists are mindful now of authenticating their works and ensuring that they can't easily be forged. That's uh, very interesting. And it's funny to hear about the forgery now because um, very recently the news, there there seems to be a little bit of debate whether or not the recent, I believe it's a Da Vinci piece yeah. sold mm-hmm. by Christie's is actually legitimate. Yeah, I was just writing something about this. I have so many thoughts on the sale. And I know we, we don't really have time to get to that. But yeah, there are a lot of questions about whether or not it really was by Da Vinci. And even if it was, the fact that it was so heavily restored kind of calls into question, is this the way the work really looked? Is this the way it originally appeared? You know, is it really by Da Vinci? And this is something that I'm writing about. Is it really by Da Vinci if the majority of the work has been reworked? So I think that that sale really does raise a lot of really interesting questions about authentication, about the value of art, about how we perceive the value of art. And I guess the idea there is if if that person was still willing to spend that money, then maybe that's the end of it. Yeah, it's true. But $450 million. Yikes. That's a, that's a huge amount. So it'll be interesting to see if it's ever resold in the future, what happens to the work, how people will value it at that time. And uh, kind of turning to the topic at hand, we invited you on today to talk about a Snapchat initiative from the beginning of October, where Snapchat has been able to, in landmarks around the world, including Central Park in New York City, the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., and Hyde Park in London, Sydney Opera House, and a few other places, Snapchat users are able to select a specific filter or screen, and then the Jeff Koons artwork appears on the Snapchat. So that's a form of um, augmented reality. And further to that, the reason why we brought you on was that an artist um, named Sebastian Erizuris, who is uh, featured in part one of this podcast, in order to make a statement questioning about whether or not cities and localities might want to start being more considerate of their virtual land and air rights, he vandalized the piece and posted it on his uh, social media pages, kind of bringing these ideas to light. And I was wondering, um, you know, from the legal perspective, uh, you know, we could start wherever you'd like if what kind of potential legal issues you might see. I think a lot of really interesting legal issues can come up. Really, the biggest issue that I see at this time are issues concerning intellectual property, so like copyright issues, um, because it sounds like this is a type of appropriation art where he's taking a Jeff Koons image and then vandalizing it or you know, adding something on top of it using, you know, creating this type of derivative work from Koons' original piece. So I see this as... Uh, the situation as involving a lot of intellectual property issues. 
And and so because Snapchat users can go to Central Park or go to one of these landmarks throughout the world and kind of add their own writing or, you know, add a little extra flair on the screen and send it to their friends, is that does that same issue arise? Because naturally, with the, the Snapchat platform, it's very easy for users to just make their own quote-unquote derivative works and send it off to their friends. Well, I think, you know, with any of these cases, anyone being accused of a copyright infringement could look to a fair use defense. And with a fair use defense, there are four prongs that we need to balance to determine whether or not it's a rightful, it's a fair use of a prior copyrighted work. And I think, you know, the, the way you set up the question, if they're just sending these images to their friends, you know, it wouldn't be a commercial use. And one of the prongs in looking at a fair use defense is what is the use? Is it a commercial use? So it's one thing to consider. You can consider whether or not someone is making money from this, how much of the art they're taking. If the Snapchat user's Instagram photo, if that's in a competing market with the original work. So there, there are all these different things to, to analyze in determining whether someone is rightfully taking this and commenting on the work or whether or not it is an infringement. And if this is kind of couched, which I personally think it is couched as a, a semi-political statement or a question um, and, and kind of raising an issue, that often is protected under fair use as well, correct? Yes. Yeah, it depends on what type of statement you're making. I mean, really, what is what is the purpose of this? Is someone trying to compete with Jeff Koons by selling the photos of these of a vandalized, quote unquote, vandalized Jeff Koons work? I would say probably not. I don't think there's any competition. I don't think anyone's selling these types of images. I'd be surprised to hear if they were, uh, you know, for millions of dollars. So I, I think it's, we're looking at what type of statement it is, what the market is, what the value is. So yeah, these are all considerations. And so where do you think the idea fits in that on Snapchat's website and on the on the application itself, it, it shows that other artists are able to submit their own portfolios to Snapchat to be used in a similar fashion down the road? Does that change your perspective on these kinds of IP issues if if they're opening up for other artists to submit their works? Or is it the same for everyone no matter what? Or is that tied into the kind of fine print that Snapchat might include when you submit your materials? That's a tough question because I think we have to examine whether Snapchat is a private or a public space. Just because they're using images in a public space, is the platform still public or is it private? Uh, I would argue that it's a, a private platform. It's not a public space. And that's the way I, I, I view this. So we'd have to see, you know, the constitutional limitations on speech. Art is a type of speech. Uh, it is protected under the First Amendment of the Constitution as a type of free speech. So um, really, I think there could be some very interesting constitutional issues here, free speech issues. However, I think that Instagram is a private platform, and if they have a vetting process where you know it's not automatic that certain artists will have their work shown and that you actually are applying for something, I don't see that as problematic. But of course, we'll see how that develops over over time and to see how broad of a, a speech platform this is. And that would apply to Snapchat as well as Instagram. Yeah, sorry if I didn't scare my No, no problem. And um, in in addition to the those kinds of potential IP concerns, there was also the question of 
the utilization of public space. And you kind of touched on how Snapchat, certain groups of people, Snapchat's almost ubiquitous, but it is still a private company. Um, It still chooses who it advertises with. It still advertises. So when you compare that idea of how it might even be looked at as a commodity these days to the fact that it's a private company, but so many people use it and they're often operating with this kind of initiative in public space. Do you see how that kind of introduces other legal questions? Yeah, I think when you start talking about a means of communication that does become ubiquitous and that becomes commonplace, then I can foresee constitutional issues arising. And I think about Facebook and limitations placed by Facebook and the arguments made against Facebook on how they filter postings and material on their site. So I I do think it's possible to view Snapchat and Instagram and these types of platforms as a public space, but I don't think it's reached that level yet. And I think, of course, there would have to be analysis into how these types of applications are limiting speech. Are, what types of restrictions are there on speech? Are there time, manner, place restrictions? You know, how are they tailoring these restrictions? Are they narrowly tailored? Does there need to be narrow tailoring? Or do these platforms have the ability to monitor everything that's being placed on them? And to that end, because it is one application that has one kind of use, specific use in these public areas like Central Park in New York City, is the idea even that they're limiting the use of this virtual space because A, people can come to the park and not use Snapchat, or B, people can come to the park and use Snapchat and not use a specific filter. So do you think that kind of adds to the kind of question about whether or not cities are even able to regulate and legislate against quote-unquote virtual airspace? Definitely. No, I definitely think that's a great point. You know, you're not forced to use Snapchat and go to Central Park. I've never used Snapchat. I've never used it in Central Park. So no one's forced to use it. There are other means of communication. The, you know, the speech that Snapchat is creating that they're putting out there doesn't stop others from expressing themselves. And even within the Snapchat universe, you don't need to use that particular filter. So I don't think that Snapchat is infringing on anyone's speech. It is not limiting speech. I think those are really great points you make. And um, when I was speaking with the Sebastian Erosuris, the artist, one thing he mentioned was kind of how these ki- kinds of projects by these potentially private companies like Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook or something else or Google might introduce you know, a bombardment of people to these public areas. and kind of thinking back to the phenomenon of Pokemon Go. And how do you feel about that? Because in my mind, it could just be, if a park is crowded, like Central Park, it could just be a beautiful day where everyone wants to get a picnic. And how different of that is than, you know, a company doing an event? Well, I think there's always a need to, you know, protect the public in a situation in which, let's say there's, you know, an online phenomenon and people's lives could be in danger or an area could be damaged. And I think about that Pokemon Go game where there were some of these characters in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and there were real 
concerns, security concerns of people being so distracted by chasing these characters that they might bump into art. They might you know, run into a painting or knock down a sculpture. So those are real concerns and the museum, you know, museum should be able to regulate that in securing the works in their possession. Uh, and I think the same thing can be said about these apps that attract people to an area. You know, if it becomes too crowded or it's attracting people to a site like Central Park at three in the morning in the dark where there could be danger, you know, that's something that a city should consider either by not allowing these apps to use certain locations or, you know, restricting the technology in some way by, you know, shutting down that app after a certain time. So I, I do think public safety is an important thing to consider in an application that is drawing people to a particular location. It's interesting that you bring that up because, and as I mentioned this with Sebastian as well, earlier, I believe in the summer, there was a lawsuit that was brought in the Eastern District of Wisconsin where the city of Milwaukee attempted to force virtual reality game developers to gain permits to operate in these public lands. And the judge basically said the same thing that you did. He said that the city is limiting the company's uh, freedom of expression to make these games, and the city claimed the same kind of danger concerns and the you know the destruction of the property of the park. And the judge responded by saying there are other ways around it without limiting expression. You can limit the times that people can uh, use this game, and on only limit it to certain parts of the park. And and so, do you think that's how these things would have to be protected or or? Uh, or halted is by going after the, the location of the use rather than the, the development itself. Yeah. So, I mean, that seems like a reasonable way to curtail any danger and any damage that could result. You know, as I said earlier, art is protected under the first amendment. And for that reason, any type of restriction on that speech should be narrowly tailored. It should, you know, and I, I think it's appropriate to have a time, manner, place restriction if you're worried about public safety. So I, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. But as you said, mm-hmm. a, a judge already stated this, had already ruled on this issue in Wisconsin to ensure public safety. And so th- what makes this uh, Snapchat art initiative that much different than Pokemon Go is, as you mentioned, the game kind of drifted people to random places onto private property, into a museum with valuable art, even in kind of solemn areas like cemeteries. And here with Snapchat, it's location specific and the locations themselves can regulate the time. And it seems like Snapchat should not have a problem kind of turning off the filter in different times. So do you think those protections alone would kind of protect these issues if the only actionable concern that a locality might be able to bring up is the public safety and overuse of their property? Yeah, I mean, that sounds reasonable to me because those types of restrictions help to protect the public, these time, manner, place restrictions. And it's really interesting to see how the technology itself could be in a way like self-regulating and to be turned off. And you can use the technology itself to protect the people, even though you know the technology may be causing harm, it can also correct itself. So I, th- I think that's interesting to see if the courts place technological limitations on these new apps. So, for instance, if there's a kind of built-in filter for a location like Central Park that kind of, when you send a Snapchat to your friend, an artistic image shows up saying, I'm in Central Park, if, you know, a city might be able to say, 
those are not able to be turned on when the park is closed, something along those lines. Yeah, like after certain hours, like you don't want people going to Central Park at three in the morning and, you know, being drawn there because there, there is a real danger. <laughs> Sorry for all the New Yorkers who say Central Park is safe. Still don't want to be there at three in the morning. So I think a filter that, you know, let's say it would, it would shut down that technology from, you know, 11 p.m. or 10 p.m. until five in the morning or six in the morning, whatever it may be, you know, that might be a way to protect the public while also allowing Snapchat to use these filters that are potentially popular. And in my uh, blog post, I kind of posed the question, because particularly in New York, we found that New Yorkers have gotten annoyed when there are these kind of big form of advertisements in public spaces like Madison Square Park. But then again, if you go to almost any park in New York City at any time of the year, there are public art exhibitions. And so I kind of see it as some people might think, you know, this is a public art exhibition, but then others might think, no, this is an advertisement. Do you, do you see it kind of on which end of the spectrum do you see it? So I don't see this as an issue of art versus advertisement because I think that art can be an ad. I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Uh, what I think is interesting, though, about Snapchat is that you can actually turn off this ad. You don't need to see it. You're not necessarily a captive audience unless you're you're choosing to use a specific filter and that's something of choice. So I think the interesting thing here is that this art and this advertising can be turned off. So it doesn't really bother others who don't want, you know, who don't want to view these items. Whereas if there's a big display in the middle of the park and there are commuters, you have to walk around it. But then if you're in the park and people are kind of using their phones on this app, there's no functional difference between that and it, it being a kind of a beautiful day where everyone has their picnic blankets out or people are, you know, playing games and hanging out and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty effective because if you're advertising to these app users, you probably have this kind of targeted audience and you're getting to them without bothering everyone else in the same space. And then just because the fact that users can turn this off um, and not use it, demonstrates that Snapchat is not inhibiting, as far as we know, some other app's ability to place another kind of augmented reality visual uh, thing for viewers to see, you know, at the same time, concurrently. Yeah, I think it actually seems like pretty good technology for just, you know, targeting and communicating with the users of a particular app without bothering others. And it leaves open other avenues for speech through other filters within the Snapchat universe and for others to use that space. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Special thanks to Ben Halperin, and a huge thank you to Leila Amenadole for being part of this week's episode. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at, at FordhamIPLJ 
or on facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. As mentioned, this is our last episode of 2017. We're going to take a much needed break and we'll be back on February 9th with another semester of all new episodes. In the meantime, please visit our website, www.fordhamiplj.org, where you can read our blog or check out our back catalog on Apple Podcasts, where you can get all caught up on our episodes from this past year. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you so much for listening.